I mean, it's important to remember that at the time, you know, we were going through just incredible hypergrowth. There was a single uh, onboarding class that, that we did with a uh, hundred salespeople in a single day. And that was, you know, we were going, joined uh, when it was about hundred employees, went to 1700, about 18 months. So just crazy amount of growth. I want to connect the listeners to the best of the best. Welcome to the Evolved Broker Podcast, coming to you on the first and third Mondays of every month. I am your host, Pat Costello, the co-founder and principal at Evolve MGA. Our mission for the podcast is to bring the insurance industry the best of the best. My guest today is the co-founder and CEO of one of the newest InsureTech unicorns in the industry. Niji Sabrawal founded a company called Agent Sync with his wife, Jen Knight, in 2018. They met while working at LinkedIn together, where he served as the global sales strategy and operations manager based out of Ireland and then San Francisco. Niji moved on to become the head of sales strategy and operations at Zenefits. If you are not familiar with the Zenefits story, it is wild. They were a hyper-growth HR startup that received a $4.5 billion valuation. Unfortunately, they grew too fast with multiple sources citing overhiring, reckless company culture, and disregard for insurance licensing regulation. Niji was the guy that was tasked with fixing the problem. The remediation plans he set up for Zenefits helped him come up with the idea for AgentSync. He and Jen have come up with a way for the insurance industry to automate producer licensing and compliance in real time with software. In our conversation, we discussed Niji's personal background, his experience with LinkedIn, the Zenefits story from his perspective, how that translated into his idea for AgentSync, and his plans for changing the insurance industry. Please download subscribe and leave a review on whatever platform you are listening on and feel free to reach out to me at pat at evolvedbrokerpodcast.com with any comments or suggestions for the podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by First Insurance Funding. First is the leading premium finance company in insurance and is known throughout the industry for their personalized service and quote flexibility. If you're tired of sending quote requests for smaller premiums to multiple companies, not leaving enough time to negotiate larger opportunities, then choose FIRST as your primary financing source and experience the FIRST difference today. Without further ado, here is Niji. Niji, welcome to the Evolves Broker Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to officially meet you. Uh, I know we talked off camera, but one of my buddies from high school, Robbie Allen, uh, I know is uh, working for Agent Sync, and you guys are connected. So, really small world there. I am really excited after looking at your background to learn more about your story and hear about everything you have going on with Agent Sync. And I saw that you went to Pali High School. Did you grow up in Palo Alto? So yeah, I actually went to went to high school in Palo Alto. I grew up in the East Bay, um, okay. a little town called uh, El Sobrante. It's just right right over the bay from San Francisco. Okay. Okay. Cool, small world. Um, like I said, yeah, I, very, very small world. Like the insurance industry, I, I, I didn't know how many people that I, you know, knew from high school or like previous roles that are now, in, you know, involved in some way in the in the industry. It's pretty cool to see. Yeah, 
it's insanely small, uh, especially from my perspective, because my dad was in the insurance industry and my grandfather was in the insurance industry. My great, I'm, I'm, my family's deep in the insurance game, so I've heard so much about it just growing up. So I, I totally uh, understand what you're saying. Um, so you went, you went to high school in Palo Alto, and then you went to UCSB, right? Yeah. Yeah, so I went to, um, yeah, so kind of grew up in the in the East Bay. I actually went to a French-American school for uh, Ecole Bilingue. It was a yeah, French-American school in, uh, it was in Berkeley, and then went to Pali for high school, and then went to Santa Barbara, which was probably too much fun uh, for, for <laughs> undergrad. And it was studied economics, really great program, but mostly just just sitting on the beach like half the day it's just uh really really fun i can imagine i can imagine i made a couple trips up there when i was in college and i i know we visited isla vista and there was you know some massive halloween parties that would go on and there was one that was in the water i think it was like flotopia or something like that yeah yeah yeah, that was a scene for sure yeah man (laughs) <laughs> it was so much fun. I mean, looking back on it, I just, I, uh, it's hard, hard to picture. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's also very ironic because it's, it's really hard to get in there, you know? So it's a lot of, yeah. it's a lot of smart kids uh, that are having a good time. Totally. Very hard to graduate. I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> I had a, a lot of friends that went to um, Santa Barbara Community College. And that's, I feel like, a place you, uh, you should go if you just don't want to graduate. <laughs> Totally. <laughs> um, but um, your first job out of college, it looks like, was working for LinkedIn in Ireland. Tell me about that process and how that worked out. Yeah, so actually, my uh, I graduated in two thousand. Uh, was it two thousand nine? It's a terrible time to graduate, especially with an economics degree, and uh, couldn't get a job. At Pete's Coffee. I couldn't get a job to save my life. Actually, for for. It's like six months or so mm-hmm. and uh, uh, ended up uh, landing a gig managing a stamp and engraving shop in, in Berkeley. And oh, so wow. I was kind of running the front office and I was actually making stamps and engraving trophies. It was actually a lot of fun. What, definitely not what I wanted to do with my career. And then um, I, was at a, I was at a Halloween party and I met a recruiter from LinkedIn who back then as 2000, um, yeah, it was 2010 by that point. Um, LinkedIn was still very new, uh, right? It was a basically a startup in uh, in Mountain View, and a couple hundred employees. And I was recruited at you know at this at this party. I was the first sales uh, sales hire for this recruiter who just joined LinkedIn. And uh, I, my first gig there was a junior salesperson doing uh, sales development there. And, uh, you know, three-month interview cycle, it was, it was pretty crazy, but I uh, landed the job there and, you know, start, started my career in, in technology there in Mountain, Mountain View, actually. And uh, I was able to kind of pitch. Um, I realized that there wasn't a lot of uh, uh, really strategic planning around the that role and, and um, you know, around systems and building good, efficient processes for the sales teams to, uh, you know, go on prospect leads, qualify them and get them over to a, a salesperson. And so I was able to kind of pitch a uh, sales operations role and, uh, was, you know, I was lucky enough to, to, to move myself into that role within the first six to nine months I was, I was in that role. And, um, 
start building out the operations program for uh, for the sales development team. And back then it was uh, maybe less than 10, 10 people and ended up growing the team into, you know, over 200 uh, sales development reps globally over nine different offices. And part of that, uh, part of that evolution was um, moving to uh, Dublin, Ireland, which is the, the EU headquarters for, uh, for LinkedIn and uh, building out uh, kind of sales processes and building up the sales ops team for the EMEA markets over there. So I spent a year in Ireland um, over the four years or so I was there. That's super, super interesting. I am like 94% Irish, I've, <laughs> I, uh, but I've only been to Ireland a couple times. What was it like working in Ireland? Was it a culture shock? Um, not so much. I'm, uh, I'm actually half French. I, I have a French passport. So I've been, um, I think I was in Ireland maybe like one time before that, but, um, you yeah, know, living, living in Europe was always kind of a dream for, for me. Um, just the access to, we were able to get on a plane and go to like Paris for basically for dinner and come back the next day and yeah, flights are dirt cheap. And it was, a uh, it was a great, great, great place to be in, especially in your twenties to, to go and, uh, kind of learn a whole new culture and, and, you know, learn a new country and, and have that, that experience it was really amazing. The weather was, was a bit of a shock. Um, I, I knew, <laughs> I knew how gray and uh, rainy it could be there, but it was, that was hard to, it was hard to stomach after a while. Cause you, you don't see the sun sometimes for a month. That's amazing that you were able to start at LinkedIn when it was 200 employees. And obviously it is what it is today. Um, you know, that really, really, a a name brand in the technology world. What was it like being at a company that I'm sure was scaling super fast? Yeah, so this is a good, good question. I was, um, yeah, I was part of the kind of the early wave of the the hyperscale and it was, it was around four, 400 or so employees when I joined. And uh, when I left, it was probably like eight or 9,000. So just oh my crazy, crazy scale. And it was, it was mostly centered around kind of a international expansion. So getting, you know, the product localized, getting the, the go-to-market teams up and running in each, uh, in each country was, was challenging to, you know, at best. Cause you think about the, the European markets, buying behaviors there are so much different than, than in the U S you have to be very thoughtful about how, how you assign certain salespeople to different, uh, different geographies. So, I mean, one, there's, there's obviously a language barrier, but, but it's also, you know, Ireland is a great hub for hiring a great talent that, that is English speaking, but you know, half the team had an accent. And so there's certain, um, there, you know, there's certain nuances you have, you have to navigate, for example, for, um, let's say a, uh, uh, SDR rep from Spain, having a Spanish accent, you can't have them selling into certain areas of the UK market, for example, it just doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So there's, um, there's just in- interesting, uh, in, you know, interesting team building and, you know, strategies around, uh, how to deploy, you know, a sales plan, um, across that many different countries and languages. I can only imagine. And I know the Irish accent is, is a bit hard to understand at times. I know <laughs> I, I personally, when I was studying abroad, um, I studied abroad in Germany and we made a trip over to Scotland and we were so excited to finally be in an English speaking country. And we get off the plane and we asked like the first guy that we see for directions. And we quickly realized that, uh, what we thought what the English speaking advantage for being in Scotland was, was, was not the case at all. We could not understand the guy, um, from the word go. So, 
Um, yeah, I'm sure that must have been a really interesting um, challenge to tackle uh, those international markets. Um, was Reed Hoffman the CEO when when you were there? Uh, no, it was uh, Jeff was the CEO at the time. Okay. Okay. Je- Jeff Weiner. Okay. Cool. And um, if you were to distill major learning lessons from your time at LinkedIn into maybe like two or three major categories, what would you say were the things that were uh, the things that you learned that were most important for your future career? Oh, that's a good one. Um, so LinkedIn had probably, it was the, the most well thought through plan and execution for, for a company I've ever seen. And at the time it was my first, you know, my first uh, real job in, in tech. And so the, I didn't have a lot of uh, points of comparison really, but looking back on it, it was picture perfect execution. I mean, thinking about this big lofty kind of goal and mission, um, their, their, their mission was to, was uh, uh, basically to create economic uh, economic opportunity uh, for really for everybody at scale. And if you think about the the impact that LinkedIn has had on on the world, it's it's truly remarkable. And you think 10, 20 years ago, was the only way you you would hire people is you post a job and you kind of you, they call it post and pray. You hope the right person kind of finds a job and comes to you. Mm-hmm. But kind of being able to flip the script and go after go after the you know the the cream of the crop talent across any market, any geography. Um, you know, there's there's few companies in my you know my opinion that that have had that sort of lasting impact. Mm-hmm. So just picture perfect execution. Their culture and values were were also you know, kind of the, the best in breed. And the, the big ones that I, I'd say I took with me are um, act like an owner. That's actually one of our, one of our values here at, at AgentSync. And that, you know, that, that's a really big one to, the simple one, you know, if you just to say it out loud, but, you know, truly acting with every dollar you spend, you know, even like every flight you book, um, just thinking, just realizing that everybody, you know, is a stockholder and, and a, you know, a true owner of the company and, and making decisions like if, you know, you're spending your own money or you're making decisions for your own company. That's something I, um, I definitely took to heart. Mm-hmm. Um, the other, I'd say the, the other big one was uh, truly investing in talent and really realizing that, that a company is just made up of a bunch of human beings with, you know, driving towards a shared goal and a shared vision. Um, it, that's an easy one to kind of forget as, as you get into the day-to-day, but um, making sure that the the entire team is, you know, a cohesive unit that that's kind of uh, rowing, rowing a boat in the same direction mm-hmm. at the end of the day and truly investing in, in, in your talent and really realizing that, you know, we, we are all a bunch of human beings and there's, um, you got to meet, meet folks where they are and also just realize that there's a lot of stuff going on in people's lives, and especially with, with, with the pandemic. We've, work has become a lot more human than it ever has. And uh, I think going into it with that, that mindset has been very helpful for us. It sounds like that you had an outstanding experience with LinkedIn. At what point did you decide to make the jump to join Zenefits? Yes, this is... Um, 2014. This is about uh, yeah four years after um, I started at, at LinkedIn. I went to Ireland, came back to, to the U.S. So here for about six months, and I got uh, recruited into into Zenefit to lead the sales strategy and operations team. We're about 100 employees at the time. Um, really interesting, disruptive new startup that 
you know, was really combining uh, employee benefits, payroll, and uh, HRIS as a you know full stack solution for uh, small businesses. Something that you know, just hadn't been tackled before. Talk about joining another company that was looking to scale fast. So, um, how many employees again did you say were there when about you started? About hundred. About hundred. Okay, and you were based in the Bay Area. Yeah, in San Francisco. Okay. Okay. Cool. Um, what was it like seeing that scaling process versus LinkedIn? And at what point did you feel like maybe we were scaling? Zenefits was scaling too fast for its own good. Yeah, good one. So um, first off, yeah, it's important to note that LinkedIn at, at that point, they grew very, very slowly for a very long time. It was a carefully kind of executed, um, you know, very well capitalized as well, uh, company that, you know, really thought through this opportunity, how to get to it and took, took their time really until, until they start pulling the, the hyper growth lever. Zenefits on the other hand, um, you know, really amazing idea, um, was a business model that could be, you know, re- could be replicated across a few different companies. And, and, uh, you know, that's definitely what happened. So there was a, there was a little bit of an urgency to get to market really quickly and capture, um, you know, ca- capture as much market share as possible. So, uh, yeah, I'd say the, uh, just the hyper growth from, from zero to a hundred was, was just a lot faster overall. Mm-hmm. And there was, you know, we, you could imagine what, you know, going to zero, zero to a hundred and in a very short period of time, you know, what that looks like. And it was, it was, we just ended up hiring too many people too quickly without all of the, you know, underlying HR, IT, um, you know, the, the critical infrastructure you need to scale a company to zero to hundred, then a hundred to a thousand. Mm-hmm. Vanity Fair has an article where they describe like the Zenefits culture as something out of like Wolf of Wall Street. How close is that to the truth? I mean, is that, is that just like a headline or was, did you feel like the culture was a little bit out of control? Um, I wouldn't say it was more out of control than most, uh, you know, startups in San Francisco, to be honest, like just a little yeah. bit more public. And there was that, uh, the sex in the stairwells article that like really didn't help matters. Right. Like at the end of the day, you know, that, that stuff honestly happens kind of everywhere. Um, not an agency to my, you know, to my knowledge, but, uh, you know, in the, in the Bay area, there was a, there's definitely a, a time and a place where that, you know, that kind of culture was, was, uh, all over the place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And at a certain point there was major scrutiny around, uh, producer compliance and making sure producers were licensed correctly to be able to sell insurance. Did you notice that at a certain point in your role, you're like, we need to get this fixed or this is a huge red flag that we need to look at immediately. Uh, it sounds like you were kind of at the the center of, um, uh, or, or at least in the discovery process of like, look, this might be a mistake that we need to fix. Can you talk about when that realization happened and what it was like? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, it's important to remember that at the time, you know, we were going through just incredible hyper growth. There was a single uh, onboarding class that, that we did with a uh, hundred salespeople in a single day. And that was, you know, we were going, joined uh, when it was about hundred employees, went to 1700, about 18 months. So just 
crazy amount of growth. So there were, you know, we had, you know, pretty small operations team, just small supporting teams in general. And, and we were, we're scaling at a rate that just was too big for, for anybody to scale. Uh, to be honest, I, I can't think of a, what we could have done to get in front of, you know, a lot of those issues. Um, at just at that rate, bringing a hundred salespeople into a system that quickly is just, this is too many people. It's a mm-hmm. too, too, uh, too many, too many new heads too quickly. Mm-hmm. And so there were, you know, a hundred different big priorities we had about, you know, where we're going to seat all these people, making sure they had the, you know, the right equipment. You know, we were, we put so many people in the, into, you know, small areas that, prospects and you know customers couldn't hear them on the phones because they're standing so close together so there was just a, a laundry list of high priority items that we needed to, to get right to you know make sure that we could keep up with, with that um you know with that growth and that scale and you know one of the things that fell by uh, fell, fell by the wayside was uh regulatory compliance and we we honestly didn't quite appreciate how you know the, the highly regulated nature of the industry that we're operating in. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about Parker Conrad stepping down and what you needed to do to put together a re, a remediation plan to right the the ship of Zenefits? Yeah, so I can't speak too much, uh, uh, you know, about Parker and, um, you know, him, him leaving the company wasn't, uh, wasn't, uh, wasn't very involved with the, with those decisions, but, uh, I can talk about the remediation effort uh, a okay. bit. So basically we, you know, we realized that there was a problem. It was a lot bigger than we originally anticipated. We kind of put an honor system on, um, a lot of the, the, licensing requirements and put it on each, uh, each rep that we're in as, as well as their manager, just making sure that they had the right licenses to do their, their role. And, uh, resident, you know, going, looking back, we, we found a bunch of gaps where, where we, we just didn't have the right licenses in time. And so, um, you know, at that point we, we, you know, basically self-reported out to, to regulators once we realized that that was a pretty big issue and uh, did a pretty pretty comprehensive analysis to, to really identify how many, um, you know, how many violations we had across every jurisdiction. And I ended up bringing it to, to state regulators and work with state regulators to, um, you know, talk through the remediation effort. And part of that effort was actually building uh, in-house technology to basically connect direct, connect our own Salesforce instance that we're using every day to kind of manage transactions and uh, connecting that system directly to state regulators so that we can in real time verify the, you know, the compliance for every transaction that's going through a quote, bind, and before getting paid agent commission. So we're able to stand up those uh, integrations and um, basically we hired a kind of outside uh, third-party engineers to come and build it. We built, um, you know, really a best-in-class compliance uh, monitoring and enforcement program. And uh, we pretty much overnight, as soon as we stood up, we were able to make sure that no, you know, no additional violations came through the system, um, you know, using those integration and technology we built, which was really the, you know, the, the, the idea for AgentSync at the end of the day. So it was during that remediation process that the idea for AgentSync was born. Um, what was there, like, was the process just when you were going through it, did you feel it was confusing, um, complex? Uh, 
there was just, because I, 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 again, we had kind of have our own little compliance department within Evolve um, where we have to deal with licensing and we have to uh, make sure we're, because every state is different and every state's changing, um, especially with, for us, we have to deal with surplus lines. Um, but is that, when you're going through that process, we're like, this this could be optimized. This could be a lot easier and a lot of people are having to go through this. Is that when you kind of discovered it? Exactly. Yeah. So we had a, you know, fairly rudimentary process uh, at the beginning where, you know, we would have producers and their, their licenses and spreadsheets, super typical across, uh, you know, most agencies and the stuff is incredibly difficult to navigate. Um, especially if you're, you know, coming into a fairly new and you don't have a deep, un, you know, understanding and, and really understanding the history for, for all these regs. And yeah, they're con- it's a, the, you know, the ground's always moving below you as you're trying to build processes and, um, you know, automation around uh, these, these regs that exist that are very specific to every state. So there's different education requirements. There's different, every state has different renewal requirements um, when the, you know, C credits are due. Um, that you have to go get, you know, non-resident licenses in all your states. You have to worry about uh, if you're an agency, you got to worry about affiliations, making sure that uh, you've affiliated all your producers kind of state by state and you also terminate them if, if they come off and then contracting with all different carriers and then having the carriers submit all the uh, carrier appointments. So it's, it's a rat's nest of complexity and creates this huge paper chase for, for um, you know, both the agency, actually the agency, the MGA and the carrier alike. So, you know, kind of stumbling on this, uh, uh, you know, on this, this underlying business process that, that, you know, need to be in place coming from, you know, my, my background building, um, really building tools for salespeople to be, to be more effective at, at LinkedIn and then its benefits, um, stumbling on this problem was, was it really blew my mind. Uh, there, was, mm-hmm. there was no good technology to support this, you know, this problem is ubiquitous to every agency, MG and carrier in the, in the U.S., just bonkers. And most people probably don't know this, but you start, well, actually, I, I'm not sure, but you started the company AgentSync with your wife, Jen, as the co-founder. Was it, did you see all these issues at Zenefits and were you coming back and were you guys kind of discussing the idea and, and kind of like, you know what, we could be an excellent team if we, if we hit the ground running and, and start working on this? Totally. That's bringing back a lot of memories. So... Yeah, at that point, she, I mean, she was kind of, she was like my psychologist going home. It was, it was a tough time for, for the whole company going through. Like one, you know, we, we climbed to, um, was a $4.5 billion valuation. Uh, the company was, you know, uh, while I was you know, going through hyperscale and there was, there was definitely some, you know, some, some gaps in a lot of the, you know, the processes we needed to be able to support the company in that scale. The company was doing really well, uh, especially on the outside. And, uh, you know, ha- running into such a big, you know, a hurdle at, at that point was, it was sobering for, for everybody involved. Um, and, you know, we, she was definitely, yeah, my, my psychologist going home, we were kind of talking through, um, like the first, first, uh, the first day we were meeting with regulators, we just got punched in the face all day long. It was mm-hmm. brutal. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were, they were not pleased with us for good reason. I, I mean, it was, yeah, it was some <laughs> tough times. So, you know, we were, 
I was more kind of just venting a lot of my, you know, the, the days and, and frustration yeah. with her. And um, as, you know, we kind of shifted gears towards the remediation effort and start building the, the uh, we called it licensing plus was the, the internal technology we built. And, you know, realizing that there was the, you know, there was a software solution to this was, was pretty cool. Um, just kind of coming to that realization and uh, Jen is, you know, she's, uh, she's our, our, co-founders, CTO, and uh, has been, you know, building tools like this her, her entire career. So it was definitely, she, she helped kind of advise, you know, different components of like how, how to go about the bill, what type of engineers to bring in, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, as we, we built it all, we, we realized that, Hey, this is something that could have a lot of, you know, that has a market value for sure out you know, outside of that specific use case. So, you know, once we got through the woods with, uh, with the regulatory issues or settled violations in, in every, every jurisdiction and able to actually keep uh, our employees, the brokers out of it, um, making sure that they didn't have any lasting repercussions for it. Um, once we got through the woods, we realized that, Hey, this is something that, you know, that could have legs and, and Zenefits was gracious, gracious enough to sign the, the IP over, uh, over to me. And so what we ended up doing at, at Zenefits was built, uh, took that internal technology, open source as a free app on the Salesforce app exchange for the entire industry to benefit from. And uh, we actually got one of the keynote stages at Dreamforce to, to tell the story and, um, you know, basically talk about how we used, you know, Salesforce's very specific way to solve this problem. And uh, it was, it was actually it was kind of a DIY type of build because you had to integrate it to your own system for for it to um, uh, for it to run efficiently. We had uh, surprisingly it was actually more carriers than brokers actually reached out about uh, using the technology. Part of it is Zenefits as a competitor to most brokers, and you know <laughs> um, the thought of of using competitors, you know, compliance software to run your own compliance was like kind of probably a scary thing. <laughs> uh, so we just we saw a lot of uh, carriers and actually MGAs adopt the app and start using it. So that's when a bunch of light bulbs went off my head. This thing could be could be a lot bigger. And the first version was a pretty rudimentary version that um, you know just basically verified licenses uh, at certain triggers as deals came into Salesforce. Um, yeah, what we ended up building with AgentSync was was uh, above and beyond. That's really impressive. At that point, did you is that when you decided to move from San Francisco to Denver? Yeah, so we um, bootstrapped the business. So we were we were funding the business of our checking account. It was actually mostly our um, the LinkedIn IPO money that we were able to use to you know, to get the business off the ground. Um, at that point, Jen was working at Stripe full time and you know managing a, a giant team. So she built out their business technology function there. I think grew the team to maybe 40 or 50 people. And um, I was working on AgentSync uh, you know, during the day. She was working on eight, uh, nights and weekends. I was basically just having to like negotiate for a time to, to, to get certain <laughs> features out. And, uh, you know, we got the MVP up, uh, got in front of a few customers. I, I probably met with a hundred, you know, brokers and carriers to just get their feedback and, and start iterating as quickly as you could. Cause you know, looking back on, I knew this much about the, the actual problem, um, that, that we were solving for. And, you know, that much was, was enough to get, to get a few customers interested and bought in and then they helped us actually shape what the product looks like today. So if you look at the products, probably 80% of the product itself and our roadmap is really focused on direct customer feedback as we we're figuring things out. And then we save about 20% for kind of the bigger, bigger bets um, that we were going to make. Niji, you have a star studded list of investors from 
the Silicon Valley world, Mark Benioff, David Sachs. I'm, I'm actually a big fan of the, <clears throat> the All In podcast um, that he's on. Elad Gill, um, I read his book, uh, his book on startups. Um, how did you go about raising capital and what made you so successful? Yeah. Um, honestly, I think like product market fit and the team that we've kind of assembled is, is done 90% of the, the legwork there. Uh, but in the early days, so we, you know, bootstrapped the company. We, we got the MVP out very quickly, got a tremendous early traction the first year. And we we're able to, um, you know, we closed probably like three or four quarter million dollar deals um, back when we were, you know, bootstrapped. It was, man, it was like, we were just like sitting in our kitchen, basically, you know, building all the stuff and I was running, you know, 10 hour, 10 hours a day of, of, of Zooms before the pandemic too. So I kind of, <laughs> was almost like quarantining myself the year before anyway, <laughs> with, you know, working on this business. And, uh, you know, and then we, we realized, okay, we got some pretty special hands. This thing's a lot bigger than we originally anticipated. The market's a lot bigger. We realized that, hey, this is not just working for brokers, also working for carriers and MGAs. And our, our, our customer base and really revenue is split about a third, a third, a third between carriers, uh, MGAs and brokers. So it just kind of worked out that way. And so, um, you know, as we, as we got that early traction, we realized, okay, if we're going to, you know, take advantage of this thing and build, you know, a decent moat so that um, we get ahead out, you know, out in front of any competitors to kind of figure out uh, how to do this, you know, in, in any sort of competitive uh, way that we need to raise some capital to um, to fund the business and grow kind of beyond our, our the means that we had. So we we're actually using customer revenue because we, we got to cash flow positive. We're using customer revenue to, to you know, feel good about hiring additional employees as we went. And, um, you know, the idea was really to use cash over checking account to get, you know, the first year up and running. And then um, if things were going well, we, you know, Jen and I would look at each other and say, like, yes, let's, let's do this. And then we, um, you know, went out to go raise money. And this was, this was like February of 2020. It's like really, you know, weird time to look back on. Oh, but yeah. we, yeah, so we, <laughs> we made the decision to, to raise capital. Um, we, um, uh, yeah, so we made the decision to raise capital based on a, a business plan we put together. We realized that doing it in San Francisco probably didn't make a ton of sense. We were trying to be really capital efficient at, at that point, and just competing for talent in San Francisco is really very difficult. Uh, difficult place to compete for talent retention is a nightmare there. Just cost of office space, everything's just really expensive. So we looked at a few different cities that we can go, you know, go find the employees that we needed to, to build this business that would, you know, stick with us for long haul. And you know, fell in love with Denver right away. I mean, we have um, Denver, Denver, the, the the city center has a ton of talent here. We have good good uh, feeder schools from you know Boulder um, and, and a few others. There's actually Boulder where there's a lot of tech talent there. There's a Denver Tech Center just south of Denver that's um, got a ton of kind of more more senior talent. So I fell in love with the you know the city itself, being next to the mountains, going you know being so close to uh, you know Breckenridge, for example, go skiing. It's been been a <laughs> very fun place to be. So I fell in love with it right away and. Uh, we made the decision to move here. We ended up closing our house. We found out we were pregnant. And then the first lockdown uh, was issued in San Francisco all within the same, I think it was like a week or two. So it was 
weird times. <laughs> and then we, we ended up, fun, we were doing uh, pitches basically over a two week period as we were moving out here, which was also just really stupid looking back on it. We should have put some space between it. But we you know, realized that we need to raise ca capital. We, we need to do it fairly quickly, um, you know, given the, the trajectory that we we're on. So we were fortunate enough to, um, so Parker Connor, I was actually our first investor and he wrote, uh, wrote the first check in the company. And he, I think he sent out maybe like eight or nine intro emails to um, to other investors, and that literally paved the way for um, you know every dollar that we that we've raised today. And so you know the way generally works is you send some of intro emails. We you know pitched all of them, and then mm -hmm. either you know went well, or they would send us in a you know a different direction. Say, oh, I actually know this other person would be. Um, you know, really great for you to talk to. So what happened was we talked to a lot and a lot uh, said, oh, you should talk to Ray Tonsing from Caffeinate Capital. And we had like a 30 minute call with Ray and then we ended up, uh, they decided to co-lead the round together. Um, he sent us a term sheet that night. So it came together really, wow. really fast. That's, that's super exciting. In terms of um, your ideal strategy for the, I guess if we're thinking about the clients that, you think Agent Sync would be perfect for? Who would those clients be, and have they have they changed from you know the beginning of Agent Sync to uh, where Agent Sync is now? Yeah, so I'd say the, the you know the core core value proposition and and the core um, use cases are still very much um, you know they're, they're very relevant still today. So we you know, we really make sense for any, um, anyone who's involved in the distribution of insurance in any way, shape or form. So carriers, MGAs, MGUs, aggregators, FMOs, IMOs, uh, agencies, whether you're a five person agency to um, you know, smallest agencies, we probably have a few that are under 10. And then the largest ones are, you know, over five, 6,000. And then on the carrier side, you know, we make sense for kind of smaller regional folks all the way up to, you know, Super Bowl commercial carriers. So we really play in, you know, in every type of distribution model, InsureTech uh, versus traditional, I mean, you, you name it. Is it you know, the, the, the one thing that's constant across all of those is how important distribution is and how important the producer is at the end of the day. I think a lot of folks probably have more outside the industry probably think that insurance is, you know, going the way of being able to quote to buy online, doing everything through, you know, an app or, or website, definitely not the case. Producers still represent the vast majority of every pre, every dollar premium written in the U.S. today. Mm -hmm. And so the, yeah, the, the one, you know, constant there is that relationship between the producer and the products that they have to sell through the underwriter. So we bridge that gap through the onboarding, the contracting, the background checks, all the, the license verifications, the carrier appointment submissions. Mm -hmm. And we've gotten to a place where it's a commoditized experience that is quick, painless, um, and, you know, really creates a, a great broker experience at the end of the day versus, you know, going back and forth, doing a paper chase with the compliance admin for three weeks. Um, we, you know, we have a self-serve portal where the brokers can basically do everything themselves really quickly. Clearly, you guys are getting traction based on your last round of funding. You guys have a unicorn valuation. I believe you guys are still the most recent unicorn in the insurtech world, which is super exciting. With the the new round of funding, how would you describe the future for Agent Sync? What are you going to do um, with that cash? 
Yeah. Um, well, first off, I think healthcare.com actually they they got a they hit unicorn status right at, right after we did just oh, okay a bit of okay yeah okay <laughs> we'll give them some credit um, but we are the only insurtech uh, or yeah insurtech unicorns focused on uh, infrastructure for the industry which is really really fun place to be and so um, yeah what the future looks like for us um, you know, honestly the you know the valuation around probably hasn't changed too much it just helps us making sure we have the right, um, you know, war chests to fund this, this vision and, and, you know, continue, uh, continue on our mission. And so the, the big piece, I'm trying to be a little bit careful. I can't speak too much about it because it's not, uh, not released yet, but, uh, at a high level, what we're doing is taking what, um, taking what we've built, which is really enterprise grade, um, producer onboarding compliance platform that's, that's generally been focused on um, the agency or the MGA or the carrier and um, you know, moving to a world where we're actually going to have broker-facing products direct to individual brokers and really with the aim of um, um, supporting them to reclaim their identity as a really, really important part of the ecosystem where I think um, if you look if you look at the industry today, brokers are, you know, there's varying degrees for sure, but brokers usually exist as a line item, a spreadsheet, and um, you know, multiple carrier systems. We are working towards, um, you know, building a world where you know, broker can own that profile and own that identity, um, and you know, really wield that power across all the different carrier and MGA partners that they might be working with. That sounds like a very exciting vision for the future. And uh, I'm very interested to learn more once uh, it becomes a little bit more tangible and you can you can provide a little bit more detail. But Niji, I'm really glad that we connected. As we said, it's such a small world in the insurance industry. So I'm sure we have tons of um, common connections and uh, people who we don't even know uh, that are, um, like I said, we, we have some sort of connection to. So um, we typically end with five rapid fire questions that you can answer as, as quickly or um, you can take as much length as you'd like to answer these questions, but they're fun, they're professional. It's kind of a mix between the two. So if you're ready, I can dive into those. Yeah, shoot. Okay, cool. What is the biggest difference between Denver and San Francisco? Um, a negative difference, I'd say food. Um, Denver is great food, but San Francisco is up there and food is probably my, my like number one priority in life. I can actually say that pretty confidently, <laughs> Maybe not number one, I have a daughter now, but, um, <laughs> I get the point. Uh, and then I'd say on the like, uh, positive side, um, just access to nature is truly on, on a different level in San Francisco, you have to wait. Like it's like a twelve month waiting list to go camping, for example, just to get a spot to go camping. Um, Denver, you drive twenty minutes any direction, you're in like completely pristine nature, like where there's like nobody else even walking around. Okay, okay. Connecting to that question, did you have a favorite restaurant in San Francisco? Flower and Water. Flower and Water. Okay, okay, mm-hmm. cool. I actually don't think I've been there, so. Oh, I gotta check it out. I so gotta good. check it out. Yeah. Yeah, because I'm just oh. I'm in the northern part. Of, I'm in I'm in Cal Hollow right now in the city, so um, I will have to check it out. Question number two: Do you have a favorite investor? Ooh, 
Um, you know, we like all of our investors <laughs> equally. <laughs> I, no, fig- I, gotta, I figured I say, that might be the way you dance. I got to say, you know, from a, you know, like which ones we, I just can't, you know, can't help but, but send a shout out to for how much we appreciate them kind of betting on us when, uh, you know, before it was, you know, before we had a ton of success is definitely a lot. And, uh, Ray Thompson from, from caffeine capital, um, you know, the wasn't, especially at that point, there wasn't a lot of investment. There was barely any investment in underlying kind of infrastructure plays for, for the insurance industry. And they, you know, took a big bet on us and, um, yeah, we'll be forever grateful for that. Cool. Question number three, what is a better place to ski or snowboard Denver or Tahoe? Uh, well, it's no, yeah, not, not really Denver, but like Vail, Breckenridge, um, the Colorado over Tahoe for sure. Okay. That was a lot of, a lot of fun, but the, the scale of the mountains out here is just way bigger. And the, the snow, the quality of snow is a lot better because it's so, so much drier out here okay. and just higher, higher altitude. I'm very interested because I'm going to Aspen for the first time towards the end of February. Oh, awesome. So, yeah. I've never yeah. been, but, um, uh, it, I, yeah, I can guarantee it'll probably be better like skiing than, uh, than Tahoe. Okay. But I still love Tahoe. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. It's, yeah, yeah. It, it's also like an eight hour drive to get there from the Bay Area sometimes with traffic. I know. I know. Seriously. It's in, in the lines up there. And I know if you could get in midweek, I feel like that's ideal. If you, if you can oh. sneak in there. Um, but, um, okay. Question number four. Are there any other, any books that you would recommend to other entrepreneurs? Ooh, um, I'm not reading anything right now. Honestly, I don't have a ton of time to devote to it. But um, the most recent book I've read I really enjoyed was the, this is a weird one, uh, The Emperor of All Maladies. Definitely nothing to do with business, but a uh, it's kind of a, an interesting history and perspective on how different cultures think about cancer. Wow. Very interesting. Okay, cool. Final question. Super general for you. What are you most excited for in 2022? I mean, hopefully the pandemic to start to make its way out of our lives. Um, I'd say that's probably the biggest one by far. Um, and also my, uh, we have a 15 month old. So she's starting to, uh, she's starting to develop a lot of, uh, she's like turning into a little human being. So that's probably what I'm, I'm really most looking forward to is having a conversation with her by the, by the end of the year. Yeah, that's awesome. That's, that's super exciting. Well, Niji, thank you again for coming on, man. I'm really glad we connected. Um, and, uh, if there's anything you need, um, that we can ever help out with, don't hesitate. If you, uh, the other thing is, if you're ever coming back to the Bay Area to visit family or whatever it is, um, if you want to connect, grab a cup of coffee. I'm always here. Yeah, I really appreciate it. This is a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Niji. Talk to you. Please download, subscribe, and leave a review on whatever platform you are listening on. And feel free to reach out to me at pat at evolvedbrokerpodcast.com with any comments or suggestions for the podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by First Insurance Funding. First is the leading premium finance company in insurance and is known throughout the industry for their personalized service and quote flexibility. 
If you're tired of sending quote requests for smaller premiums to multiple companies, not leaving enough time to negotiate larger opportunities, then choose first as your primary financing source and experience the first difference today.